Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Tribal Scale Vice President Matthew Street tells us how his company duplicated the $54 million ArriveCan app for under a million. Canadians for Affordable Energy President Dan McTague looks at the roller coaster ride that is Vancouver gas prices these days. There's a new survey saying 80% of workers will be quitting if compelled to return to the office full-time. Stephanie Bolinski from Hardbacon has details. And four years into legalization, Mario Canseco has a new cannabis survey. So, let's get started. Tribal Scale is a global innovation firm that helps enterprises adapt and thrive in the digital era. Through agile practices, they transform teams, build best-in-class digital products, and create disruptive startups. That's a great description for a company uh, whose vice president, Matthew Street, joins us now from Washington, D.C. Matthew is vice president sales and marketing with Tribal Scale, a company that's been in the news for, well, its critique of the government of Canada's spending practices. Matthew Street, good morning and welcome. Hey, good morning, and thank you for having me. Well, it's nice to have you. It's great to have you with us. I love the description on your website of what your company does. Now, Matthew, uh, we had Bill Curry from the Globe and Mail, their Ottawa bureau chief, on last week talking about the three-part investigation that he conducted into the ArriveCan app, uh, which cost you and me, the taxpayers of Canada, 54 million bucks. And in the course of his reporting, Bill joined us on the radio, Matthew, and told us about you. And, and the other company, Laser Technologies, and the hackathon that you had planned basically to try to reproduce the ArriveCan app for something that would come in under 54 million bucks. So pick up the ball and run with it there if you would, please. Yeah, sure. It was actually um, Bill's story that we were discussing in our morning stand-up at Tribal Scale. We have a, a stand-up every morning where we talk about top global tech news. And obviously, you know, this caught our attention and as we're talking about it, you know, our team is very passionate and self-motivated. And we started, you know, all having been users of ArriveCam. We were like, wow, sure. $54 million for this, you know, to be developed? You know, that's just not possible. And so what we wanted to do is, you know, just put a spotlight on how, you know, the minds of the Canadian tech community could have built this app for a lot cheaper and a lot quicker and, quite frankly, a lot better. You know, we had built it soup to nuts. And and that's what we wanted to do. And in doing that, we also wanted to provide a solution moving forward um, to help the government you not have this kind of spend on you know, these you know, type of technology solutions that they're looking at in the future. Right. Now, in terms of the, the app that you and, and Laser, the other company, both did uh, your own experiments individually, uh, you didn't create the app. You duplicated the app, right, Matthew? So the, 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 the element of, of coming up with something out of the blue – uh, wasn't part of what you were conducting. You were simply, uh, now that you had the mission statement, let's develop an app to correspond with that, correct? Correct, yeah. We replicated the ArriveCan app. Um, you know, obviously, it would take more time, but we were coming up with the concept and building it from scratch. So we were able to replicate it, you know, in 48 hours, and this was a voluntary hackathon that our team you know, wanted to do, you know, again, to put this spotlight out there. Sure. And now, you know, kind of what's fallen out of that, we've started the Canadian Technology Consortium. And, you know, when we 
started getting attention for doing this, we put out a you know sign up form for anyone from the Canadian tech community to join us, you know, with this mission of providing a free resource for the government to come to to, you know, get these answers and and just consult with on future, you know, tech procurements that they're gonna have coming up. What a great idea, Matthew. So what's the participation? What how many people have been jumping in? More than a few, I would suspect. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, I was you know blown away by the response, but actually, you know, I shouldn't be with all the great minds um, in the tech community here in Canada. We we had over 50 people, you know, within the first few days, fill out the form to want to participate voluntarily in this consortium. And we held our first meeting yesterday at 7.45 a.m. Eastern time. And uh, I'll, I'll be the first to apologize for you guys on the West Coast. We're going we're gonna to adjust. We'll get you next time. Uh, okay. Next meeting. Right, right. So we had over 40 people show up, start um, contributing, you know, really innovative ideas. And, you know, this isn't a tribal scale thing. You know, this, we want this to be, you know, a, a, a Canadian technology community thing because we don't have all the answers. But I think collectively with this, you know, brilliant group that's come together, um, we w- we could have all the answers and really provide the government with this unbelievable resource for free. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we want to do is just have taxpayer dollars be used smartly. And we have the, you know, all the smarts you're right here at home to be able to do that. Indeed. And it's a great idea too. Good for you. Uh, I wanted to just zoom in on one aspect of the $54 million tab attached to arrive sure. can Matthew. And that's the fact that the major uh, award of the bulk of the money went to a small ish company with fewer than a dozen employees who turned around and basically subcontracted or farmed out the whole project. They were sort of the middleman, and so they got to spread a lot of money around to a lot of different sources. That's a typical political solution, spread a lot of money around, make a lot of constituents happy. But in the process, they blew $40, 54000000 million. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not political myself. We're trying to do this for you know, both sides of the aisle. I appreciate really, that. You want to bring that capital efficiency and productivity to the table because that's what – you know, we do for our clients at tribal scale. So, you know, we're a resource now with this consortium um, for the government. And, you know, we're encouraging more people to sign up and join in from the, the tech community. And, you know, you can find information, you know, on our social medias right now. We're going to be building a, a Slack community and putting out a resource landing page for the government. And this is just what's come out of our first meeting. So, sure. Uh, I think good things are ahead. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I'm not trying to be political on you and, and, and draw right, right. you into something you're not particularly keen to be drawn into, but I think it's, it's, it crosses political lines. It's government procedure and procurement sure. attitudes, Matthew, that I'm going right, after right. here rather than political flags, because right. procu- procurement at the government level is left essentially to bureaucrats. And given their... Um, given their choice and the way they like to do things, it's pretty easy to see how that trap that cost us $54 million instead of perhaps, what would you estimate, by the way, a private company like uh, like yours, like Tribal Scale, if you were issued the contract by the government of Canada create, to create an ArriveCan type app all by yourselves in-house, what do you think mm-hmm. the total tab might turn out to be? You know, honestly, just a rough estimate, not knowing all the the details of the scope. 
you know, under a million dollars easily. Wow. Okay. And that's what we heard from Bill. And we also heard from the folks at Laser Technologies, the other t- company involved in this hackathon you had last weekend. What was the reaction when you had this meeting yesterday, Matthew, with all of these representatives of, and brains, the, the, the brain power behind that gathering you had yesterday of 40 participants? What was the general tone of the meeting with respect to a government spending and, and the kind of efficiencies you automatically represent? Yeah, it was you know, honestly the, the tone. I think you know, everyone kind of came to the table looking to you know change the the outlook and and with a solution you know outlook versus you know just there to complain about what happened. Right. Everyone had gathered you know together and spent their time you know at, you know at this meeting because of that. So once we were there, it was more solution focused and you know, sharing ideas of different experiences and working with the government. We even had, you know, a lobbyist there um, giving us advice on, on from their experience. So there was a lot of great minds and, and the attitude and the and the, the vibe of the meeting was positive and solution oriented. So um, it was a good start. What's uh, what appetite, if any, do you sense is really, really a new. This is brand new. This is days old, Matthew. So it's right. it, It's a tough question to ask. But what what attitude, if any, do you sense for uh, reception uh, from this this new consortium you've created, this offering the government of Canada tons of free advice from really smart, accomplished people? Is there anyone in government interested in talking to you? And that was, you know, a topic we talked about yesterday in the meeting. And that's really the next step is is to start um, reaching out to the government as we build this resource. You know, we're going to create this landing page and, and and let them know that, you know, we're coming from a great place here to help them. So so that's the first item on our agenda is to make those connections, you know, with government officials to be able to uh, you know be this resource for them. So to be sure they're aware that we're out there and that we're ready to uh you offer them this free advice, um, you know, just from our community here. All right. Well, in that regard, Matthew, we wish you considerable success. It's going to take. It's going to be a bit of a chore, but well done if for for putting the effort and the energy into it as far as you have. Thanks very much for joining us today to flesh it all out on the radio for us too, Matthew. We appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. And again, the next meeting for the consortium will be a, a west, you know, time where you guys on the west coast can can join in and help us out too. So. You look forward to that, and, and we look forward to what's, you know, what's ahead here. Thank you again. Good news would be uh, welcome, and we've had a little bit of it in the last 24 hours here on the West Coast. I'm talking about gas prices now, uh, down to, well, below two bucks. That's always a big start. Uh, coming in today, Phil and I come down First Avenue off the freeway, and I always pay attention to the petrol can there at uh, First and Renfrew. It's 196.9 this morning, or at least it was at 5 o'clock this morning. Don't know what it is now. Could be anything, because in this past seven-day period, we've seen remarkable swings in prices up to and including almost 50 cents a liter. So on this roller coaster gas price ride, what on earth is next? Here to, well, perhaps toss a prediction onto the airwaves is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Dan McTagg. Morning, Dan. Good morning, Sterling. Yes, it's awfully nice to be here and uh, not have to talk about ever-increasing 
gas prices. Well, yeah, and we've had about talk about a roller coaster ride. My gosh, Dan, we were up into the two forties one day and down into a buck eighty nine within twenty four hours. I mean, yeah. w- why such dramatic swings? It, uh, is it because that refinery, which has been closed for maintenance, was suddenly reopened and boom, the price got to drop? Well, that helped, uh, although there's still t- talk that there's issues with that refinery. But what was actually more important was a ship that came in from Italy. Uh, this is a global market for gasoline for spot prices. And they looked at it and said, oh, my goodness, if we uh, if we had the kind of gasoline needed in the Pacific Northwest, we could actually make uh, so much money that we probably have to we could probably retire. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, they brought in a massive ship into Ferndale uh, a week ago today, uh, dropped off uh, what amounted to uh, well over uh, several days of supplies uh-huh. and uh, effectively flooded the market. And it was a good sign because the market had been so tight, compliments of, yes, the refinery being down, some other unplanned maintenance up and down the uh, U.S. West Coast inside the U.S. Midwest. We had a series of about 13 or 14 refineries that uh, needed badly to shut down. Or, uh, and so those were planned, but some were unplanned. And so that's created a, a significant tightness in supply. And uh, it was reflected in those high, dramatic prices, which we uh, which broke all-time records here in, uh, in Vancouver. Dan, just want to, p- to press the point on the supply a little bit, because watching American news in the last couple of days, we're starting to see the, the consequences of the Biden administration's uh, uh, yes. energy uh, programming. Uh, and, of course, they've been shafted by Saudi Arabia, who decided to side with Russia and decrease production, thereby costing the world price, causing the world price rather to go up. So what is the and America's already tapped into its strategic reserve. So what does America's uh, shortage of supply? How does that echo north of the border up here? Well, the biggest strategic petroleum reserve they had is their friends in Canada, and I'm sorry to use the expression they drop their drawers and craft all over us by uh, by basically uh, denying and shutting down on the first day he took office, Joe Biden, the uh, Keystone XL. That would have been the million barrels a day that they desperately need. And they're going to need, because in 2024, uh, U.S. shale producers will have peaked and will begin this slow but uh, gradual decline that could, by 2026, mean that they have you know, a very serious shortage on their hands. And uh, look, I, I'm not going to get into the geopolitical problem. Right. Okay. Saudi Arabia, uh, OPEC, uh, apart from their alliance with, with, uh, with Russia, which has been around for some time, has certainly been... Uh, you know, excited by the fact that their uh, their relationship is now with uh, Asia, South Asia. That's where their market is. It's no longer in North America. And that's because from 2005, 2007, until at least 2019, America stood on its own. It could produce oil. Yeah. It wasn't afraid. It started to bring down the price of oil globally because it was fracking like nothing. And uh, it certainly was helped by Canadian heavier oil, which uh, many people thought was not necessary. But uh, Given, Sterling, the price of diesel today, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear you're going to need more heavier slates of oil. This is all about a bad mistake made by policymakers around the world that we could somehow torque up and uh, push hard on this transition, a transition that is going to take decades, if not scores of years ahead of us, in order to trying to achieve it overnight. And that's where we have a shortage globally. OPEC is saying the market is dysfunctional. I happen to not agree with OPEC. I don't like their policies. I don't like cartels. I fought against them here in Canada for many years. Right. But OPEC's got a point. And look, if you guys don't want any oil, you want to attack fossil fuels, then by all means, have at her. We're just not going to give you any. 
Interesting stuff. Now, Dan, this supply that uh, has been augmented recently here in the Pacific Northwest that has caused our prices to go down temporarily, once this supply is exhausted, and you said the ship represented several days, perhaps a little more in terms of local consumption. So once that supply that we got is exhausted, are we right back to 241 a liter gas or is there another remedy on the way? I don't see that, Sterling. I, I think this is a, a, you know, a unique situation that presented itself that probably aggravated prices by at least 20 to 25 cents a litre. Uh, that's not to say that the Pacific Northwest doesn't have a problem. It does. Uh, demand is strong. Supply is just not there. And we keep finding ways to prevent uh, these refiners from doing their jobs. Uh, there isn't a lot of money in this. We keep coming out and saying the internal combustion engine is, won't be allowed to be sold in 10 years. Look, no one is going to make major investments in refineries if, at the end of the day, uh, you know you're uh, you're not willing to uh, you're not willing to uh, make a, a guarantee that these things are going to be around a lot longer. But we are coming very quickly to have to force ourselves into an adult discussion. And Europe is, of course, the best example. We have the third largest provable reserves in the world, yep. which is number eight, and it's got Europe, you know, basically blackmailed. Canada can and should be stepping up to the plate. And I realize we have obligations to the climate and all these other things, but we have gone too far down that road. Uh, and we can, if we don't turn back, we will wind up very much like them. Canada needs to get its products to market, oil and gas, and uh, it has to do so in a way that's measurable, but also demonstrates that it's winning against most other countries on the ESG score, not to mention environmental and labor uh, uh, matrix or labor standards. But at the end of the day, I think what we're looking at here, Sterling, uh, is uh, a, a necessity to get to get real, and I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. We're going to do untold damage to the world if we continue to deny it the very thing that it needs, and it's not transitioning away the way some people want it to. So, in in the short term, however, in terms of local prices, we're enjoying a bit of a a bit of a, a, a an enjoyable weekend here, Dan. It's back under two we bucks. I, I topped up my tank yesterday. It, it was, I think, a buck ninety two or something, and I, yep. I only because and hard to believe people are celebrating a dollar ninety something prices as being yay, uh, but we are. Uh, so now yep. uh, over the weekend with this supply having been augmented locally, we're expecting to stick around this level. When should we When should we be wary of that supply being exhausted and prices going back up? In other, in other words, how many days do we have left to top up at a reasonable price? No, it's going to stay like this for a little while. It's gasoline won't be the problem. Diesel is the big issue. Oh, okay. There's a shortage, and uh, although it's not necessarily directly affecting the West Coast, uh, United States and Canada, uh, the shutdown of the uh, Shell Pernis plant in uh, in Europe has made a bad situation worse. Diesel, and, and people say, well, I don't use diesel unless it's a truck or a train or you know, a big transport truck. Right. You use it for aviation. It also has an effect on home heating fuel. In parts of this country and the United States, a lot of uh, furnace oil, stove oil is being used in more, rem- in, in, in more remote areas. But diesel is also used for uh, production of uh, urea. It's also used in, in several other uh, important industrial applications. So it's rise to unprecedented levels 
it would, could eventually cause gasoline prices to go up as, as refineries try to produce more of what the world desperately needs right now, a lot more diesel during the shortage. Interesting stuff. Lots more information, friends, at Dan's website, affordableenergy.ca. Dan McTagg is president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Always a pleasure, Dan. I wish we had happier news to pass along, but we've, <laughs> we've got a, a, a brief hiatus on prices locally, and we'll take advantage of that. Thanks for this this morning, you busy guy. We'll talk again. <laughs> Great to be here. Thanks, Sterling. Have a great weekend. Uh, Here's the first paragraph of an article written by our next guest. With more talk of returning to the office, it seems that remote employees have very clear opinions about it. In fact, no less than 80% of Canadian remote workers would rather look for a new job then go back to the office full-time, according to a survey released this week by Hard Bacon. Hard Bacon is a financial tech services company based in Montreal. The author of the piece is Stephanie Belinsky, editor-in-chief at hardbacon.ca. Stephanie joins us from Belleville, Ontario this morning. Good morning, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you along with this. is a very timely survey. Uh, were you surprised by the staggering number? Uh, 81% it was reported in one of the local papers saying uh, that, that, no, not interested in going back at all. Uh, well, when I first saw the, the statistic, I was shocked, but then I kind of reflected on it. Everyone I've ever spoken to in the last two years has been like, I do not want to go back to the office. It's uh, it's anecdotal, but still, it, it's very clear. People do not want the commute. They do not want the hassle of going back into an office five days a week. Mm-hmm. And, and the other part about it, and you point this out in your survey, frankly, that I hadn't paid a lot of attention to us. Uh, Stephanie, when you go to work... It's not free. You have to commute either by vehicle with gas priced at Lord only knows what this morning, uh, or you take public transportation. And when you get there, you've got to park your car if you're not uh, taking public transportation. In other words, to go to work costs money. So are people saying that if I am compelled to go back to work, I will only do so for more money? That's a very good question, actually. The thing is that we found that workers who would be compelled to go back to work would um, demand more money from their employers, or they would look for a new job. Uh, The average amount that people would want is close to 30% increase in salary. Wow. Uh, I find that, now, is that just uh, to cover those incidental expenses related to going to work, to being a commuter once again? I know we didn't delve into the granularity of that, but again, 30% is, is more than the cost of inflation right now. It is a significant number. So what about the employer side of this? Now, I know this is all very fresh and brand new. It's only literally been out for a couple of days, Stephanie. But were you able to sample the the other side of the coin? In other words, if 81% of Canadian workers are set to hit the road if they're compelled to go back to work, what are their employers saying about all of this, especially with the, the 30% increase in, in wages demanded for the privilege of returning to work? Again, uh, it's anecdotal, but uh, from the employers I've spoken to, it's it's painful. They're kind of caught between uh, two two very hard places. They need people to work, but again, rising wages, rising costs are putting a pinch on them. But again, that's anecdotal. 
Sure. Uh, but now let's talk a little bit about what you did find in terms of, of workers and attitudes. Uh, with, For example, uh, in addition to the costs that any worker anywhere incurs simply by going back and forth to work, what were the other major beefs that were identified in your survey when you asked people about going back to the workplace? Uh, the major beefs are mostly the, the inconvenience of going to work. Um, some of the people polled were either 100% or only two days a week uh, present at the office, and it seems that that was, that was a good balance. Otherwise, they would have had to spend, I would say, if they went back five days a week, like out of pocket, on average about $6,800 a year, and they're just not looking forward to it. Right. So, uh, but there is some uh, give and take here. There's some flexibility built into this protest. In other words, I'm not going back to work, period, is not necessarily the most widely held attitude. The hybrid approach seems to me, at least from what I'm able to see from the sidelines, Stephanie, that that's the solution that most people on both sides of the table seem to be heading towards. Do you agree? I would say that it will most likely be the end result. And with what kind of accommodations on both sides do you see? I see flexibility, almost like a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week kind of flexibility, that it's no longer the nine-to-five. You're in, you're out, and your boss is watching over you. It's more like, I can work these hours, but I need time to do whatever else I have to do, whether it's take care of children, whether it's, you know, relax, whether it's something else. Uh, but the the workday will be completed, just not in the traditional sense we've been used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is also, as a result of your findings, you were able to discern some gender differences. Tell us about that, Stephanie, please. It was actually very interesting. Uh, it flipped what I usually read on its head, and that is that men this time spend more than women to go into work. Hmm. That is surprising. And conversely then, or accordingly, are men therefore asking, on average, for more money to return to work than women? Actually, they are. Uh, I would say that they are asking about 4% more than women are to do the same thing, which is go back to the office full time. Okay. Now, uh, in some workplaces, this is fine because if you're a remote worker and you're able to accomplish your assignment on a daily basis, who cares? The work is done. It's done in a quality way. End of story. But in a lot of workplaces, Stephanie, the dynamic, the interpersonal dynamic of simply being in the shop with your colleagues and the energy created by that is very desirable from an employer's point of view. And in a lot of cases, uh, having missed it for, gosh, in some cases, two years plus now, some employers are getting a little antsy and are starting to demand a return to work and more of that collegiality in the workplace. While they may be demanding it, um, having worked in many offices, I don't think collegiality is, is the day-to-day. Uh, I think that a lot of people have found that they can maintain relationships remotely and as well, um, they're more productive. Um, a lot of distractions happen in the office that whether or not the, the executives or the boss are, are aware of, they do happen. There's noise. There's the, I should go for coffee break with this person. There's, there's an inability to concentrate or get down to it sometimes. There's stress. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that does not happen when you are remote. 
Interesting. Stephanie, we've been hearing for the last couple of years about a phenomenon called the Great Resignation, which apparently is taking place in greater numbers in the States than here in Canada. Is it that perhaps it's just being postponed in Canada because we're not quite there yet? But according to your survey, we're almost there and it's not looking very good. It will likely happen in some way here, maybe not to the extent of the United States, but if 80% of people who are currently employed would rather look for another job than return to the office five days a week, you are looking at a problem of retention. You're looking at a problem of, of people just, you know, hopping from one job to the other until they find the right fit. And it, it could cause problems for the employer, for productivity, and for the employee eventually when they realize I have to eventually settle on one job. There is no perfect. Mm -hmm. And the the labor market currently favoring the employee with far more jobs available than workers to fill them. But that dynamic isn't always going to be at play either, is it? No, it won't. Uh, We've all seen cycles, cyclical economies, all of that. So eventually things will settle either to back to a baseline or it might even flip to, and I hope it doesn't happen in a severe way, that it's the employer in control. Interesting stuff. Great survey, great work, good homework on this one too, Stephanie, and nicely packaged at hardbacon.ca. Thanks so much for joining us on a Saturday morning to give us a bit of a reality check as to what to expect in the workplace of the future. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Sterling Fox with you on this Saturday morning. That music, by the way, was not the Lonely Bull. It was actually um, walk-up music for the batters of the Atlanta Braves who are having a bad time with the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, Our producer, Phil Figueroa, big Atlanta Braves fan. Our next guest, Mario Canseco, huge Philadelphia Phillies fan. So you can imagine behind the scenes the chatter that's been going on this morning. Mario, good morning. Good morning. Great to be here with you, Sterling. Good to have you back with us, my friend. This month marks the fourth anniversary of Canada cannabis becoming legal in Canada. And before legalization, you and I have been talking about this for years, majorities of Canadians, Mario, were already in favor of it being legalized. So now, given the fact that they've been leaning in this direction even before legalization took place, now four years into the experiment, what do your numbers look like this time around when you took the pulse of British Columbians? Well, we continue to see a majority of Canadians who are happy with the notion of marijuana being legal. 64% Uh, right now also believe that we should do something about uh, essentially pardoning people who are convicted of a a possession of cannabis for personal use with no intent to a a traffic. So I think that's the big change that we see now. We were uh, seeing a lot of people supporting marijuana legalization, not really supporting the legalization of all drugs. And now ultimately looking at the situation with those who were convicted of marijuana possession and going, hey, maybe we should do something about this. Yeah, and President Biden down in the state surprised a lot of people when he issued a sort of blanket presidential pardon for individuals who had been convicted of simple possession. And of course, there are states who are going to scrap with him on this. But generally speaking, the notion of that pardon has been out there for a number of years in Canada. The government of Canada has ample opportunity to exercise its authority and yet they haven't. Is there a reason that you understand behind that or just slow process? Well, I think what we see mainly is a difference in the policy approaches of the two administrations. Uh, Joe Biden is talking about a blanket situation, something that is going to be significantly easier to implement. And marijuana is not yet legal in every American state. So that also throws in a situation where federal jurisdiction 
might be different from what some states are deciding to do. Um, what we have in the federal government right now in Canada is they want to go case by case, step by step, looking into everything. There is a website where you can apply and send your documents. So it's not going to be a situation that is going to be solved very easily. So I, I think there's a high level of support for what the federal government in Canada is doing. And one thing I was curious about is whether we were going to have some sort of political ramifications. And people who voted for the NDP, for the Liberals and for the Conservatives, majorities of those voters in 2021 believe that this is the right course of action. So there's no political uh, risk here for the government as far as doing something that might galvanize the base of the conservatives. If anything, more than three out of five of them are saying, this makes sense. Why are we punishing these people for something that is now legal? Interesting stuff. And of course, there is strong sentiment right in the right across the country. But as you took this poll, you did you sampled more than just British Columbians. This was a national poll across Canada. So compare British Columbia's attitudes towards legal cannabis with other parts of the country. Are we on side? Are we typical? Are we high or low uh, in terms of acceptance? Well, it's really been fascinating to watch over the past 10 years because when we started asking about marijuana legalization, uh, the numbers were usually significantly higher in BC and in Quebec. Uh, you had a level of support for legalization at the time that was around 65 or 66 percent, and it dropped a little bit higher than 50 percent in the rest of the country. But mm. we were definitely more adamant about legalizing marijuana. The numbers have remained roughly the same in BC. It's not as if we had a significantly higher level of support. What has changed is the way in which other parts of the country are reacting to legalization. We see now a higher level of support in Atlantic Canada and in Ontario, which used to be significantly lower. Yes. And in Alberta, also a little bit high. So it's Eastern Canada that is coming to the fold and saying, you know what, this wasn't the boogeyman that many people told us it was. It's actually good for taxation purposes, so let's just keep doing it. Uh, you know, in Washington State, which surprisingly went uh, with legal cannabis years before British Columbia, the government down there, Mario, earmarked very specifically right up front, very clearly, all taxation from cannabis products in Washington State are going to go to schools and hospitals. Cash that simply was never there before, all of a sudden, all of this new dough is going to go to two very specific targets. We haven't done that in Canada. Would it have made a difference in terms of acceptance levels, do you think, if we had? I think it would have been very different. You know, part of it is the notion that this is going to be spent somehow by the federal government. And one thing that has made this case compelling in a specific American state is that they have the jurisdiction to say where they want to spend it. Yep. Some of them are spending it on infrastructure. Washington State is using it for schools. So it's an important uh, distinction. And I think it's one of the reasons why that referendum passed. Uh, uh, people were very satisfied with the notion of, OK, we already have all of these people enjoying this, but we're not getting anything out of it. Right. If we legalize it and we use the funds for schools, then this is going to be better for everybody. And it hasn't changed the mindset of many people. You know, people were worried, oh, this is going to lead to all sorts of things being legalized mm -hmm. or people who have never tried marijuana trying it. And I did a survey back in Washington State a few years ago, and the number of people who tried marijuana after legalization is around 10 percent, similar to what we see now in Canada. Interesting stuff. When you and I have started talking about this whole business of proposed legalization, because we've been on this file for years, you were able to discern right from the get-go that, that support for this notion of legal cannabis was not universal, first of all, no surprise there, but it also varied among ethnic groups. Groups. Does that still apply? It still applies, and it's something that can become a political hot potato in federal elections. 
we see a level of support for marijuana legalization significantly high uh, in indigenous uh, uh, Canadians, in European Canadians, uh, those of South Asian descent. But if uh, you look into the community uh, of East Asian descent, uh, 41% of them support marijuana legalization. So you have a majority of Canadians of East Asian descent who simply don't like this idea. Right. And it's one of the reasons why we have the speeches that we have in federal elections, particularly in places such as Richmond. Uh, I remember Stephen Harper coming in there a few campaigns ago and, and saying essentially back in 2015, um, we're not going to legalize marijuana. He didn't say that anywhere else in B.C. except Richmond. That was the reason. And of course, there are still no retail cannabis stores in Richmond, are there? No, you have to go to Vancouver or you have to go to Surrey. Interesting stuff. And uh, speaking of legal cannabis stores, by the way, since it's been legal for four years now, and there's a whole retail infrastructure, including government stores now available, how much of the population has abandoned the guy with the white van uh, and, and started to use uh, proper legal procedures versus, you know, the dealer? Has that changed? There is, a, there is a big change this year, and I think this is wonderful news for the governments uh, that are managing cannabis sales, because now we have 48% of those who smoke or who consume mar- marijuana saying that they are getting all of their products from a licensed uh, provider. Right. Um, this used to be 38% last year, so it's a 10% increase. We could look at the statistics two ways. You know, one of them is more than half of people are still going to the white van, but the numbers are trending in the right direction. And I think this is important to note, particularly because of younger users of marijuana. Uh, those aged 18 to 34 are almost exclusively going to the stores. The ones who have a tougher time are the over 55s. They're set in their ways, they know their guy, and they want to continue going to him. Interesting stuff. Always a pleasure to listen to you uh, take the pulse of the of the nation and of our province. And uh, Cannabis, uh, you and I have been talking about this for years, and thanks very much for the update, Mario. It's uh, four years and counting. Four years and counting. And it's weird. You know, we did this survey because we thought it was important. And as we were in field, Joe Biden talked about a pardon. So uh, the timing was right. Indeed it is. Thanks for this, Mario. Have a great day. You too. And Joe Biden is a Philadelphia Phillies fan. So ring the bell. (laughs) Another shot for the Phillies. Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.